Good morning. Uh, over the last few weeks, we have, uh, in our study of Ephesians, we've seen Paul's instructions to uh, wives and husbands, and then to children and parents. And this morning, we see his instructions to slaves and masters. Now, um, slavery is not an attractive topic, and it uh, it's not seen as particularly relevant in our modern culture when slavery is so far in our rearview mirror as slavery in earnest. Uh, many of the sermons that I've heard on this particular passage, Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9, focus on its application to employees in the workplace and to employers in the workplace. And and I absolutely believe that it is relevant in that context. And we'll talk some about that. But I'm very convinced that we will miss the weightiness of this passage and we'll miss a revolutionary charge to the body of Christ if we reduce this to a commentary on the workplace. We must understand the impact of this passage on the people to whom it was originally delivered in Asia Minor when Paul wrote this letter. Paul begins with the word douloi, the Greek plural of doulos. Many of you know that word. You've heard of it before. It means slaves. Now, it's translated in different versions of the English Bible as slaves, servants, bondservants. Now, I personally believe that the, that the word servants is inadequate, not because its essential meaning is wrong, but because in our modern context, uh, our reference point for servants is like the downstairs staff of Downton Abbey, right? The word bond servants is, is a pretty good translation, but only if we recognize that the word bond means bound. It means enforced. Okay. The the simple fact is that the word doulos throughout the entire New Testament and the Hebrew equivalent ebed means slave. It means slave. It doesn't mean employee. Okay. There are many many New Testament specific New Testament scenarios over a pretty broad spectrum to which the word applies. You know that the Greek and Roman empires had been mighty in battle, starting with Alexander the Great and then into the Seleucids and the Caesars, and they had conquered many, many different peoples. And in those conquests, what typically happened to the soldiers and often to the rank and file in the conquered nations is that they were taken into the kingdom, into the empire as slaves. These are the people who then did all the hard work, the really super hard work, for all of Rome's very ambitious construction projects. And they were many. These people were conscripted to work in the fields and to plant and to harvest. And they were the household slaves of many Roman officials. And the Romans also, they they added to their coffers by selling many of these people into servitude to other 
wealthy Romans, especially Roman citizens. But it, it wasn't just the wealthy who had slaves. In fact, many households, even fairly modest, modestly well-to-do households, had at least one household slave. Another category to which this word applied was, uh, was indentured servants or slaves. Uh, the, w- the way that happened is that let's say you're from a poor family and your family gets in really bad financial straits and the only way that they can actually survive and be fed is for you to be sold as a slave to somebody else. And those were usually household slaves. So then you you were enslaved by that other family until either you paid the debt or if the debt was too large until you died. John MacArthur says that in the Roman Empire, in the time of Paul, at least one out of every five in the Roman population was a slave. Sinclair Ferguson says at least one out of three was a slave. So if you split the difference, you can say about one out of every four people in the Roman Empire was a slave. And so the relevance of Paul's instructions here was huge. Can you imagine the advancement of Christianity if it didn't apply to slaves? The relevance of this to employees and employers is the relevance of the lesser to the greater when it comes to application. Because the greater, more intensive, more more powerful expression of this is its relevance to slaves. And we need to get that. We need to understand what's going on here. The one thing that, that those to whom the word doulos applied uh, that, that was perfectly consistent across all examples is that their servitude was enforced. They were slaves, not employees. Okay, That's important to this passage. It's central to this passage, especially to the spiritual ramifications of this passage for us who are Slaves of Christ. Now, why didn't Paul uh, just condemn slavery? <laughs> you know that to our modern sensibilities, the whole notion of slaves, of forced servitude, and especially the notion of one human being owning another human being as property is absolutely anathema. But it was exceedingly common to the people who received this letter. I could spend a whole lot of time defending the assertion that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the beating heart of the abolition movement in both England and America. Men like William Wilberforce, John Newton, John Wesley in England, and in America, Charles Finney, Theodore Weld, Lyman Beecher, the father of Harriet Beecher Stowe who was a minister, a Presbyterian minister, were zealous advocates of the abolition of slavery. And they were propelled by the gospel in that effort. Because the gospel that declared that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free man, but we are all one in Christ, doesn't fit with the notion of one human being owning another human being. It doesn't fit with the notion of forced servitude. But I must also point out 
that over many, many years and even generations, there were way too many Christians on the wrong side of that issue. And it would be disingenuous if we didn't acknowledge that. Being a Christian does not make you right unless you are biblical. I could go into that for the rest of the day, but we, but, but there's a very good reason I'm not going to do that, and that's because that's not what this passage is about. What this passage is about is far more revolutionary. And you might think, how much more revolutionary can you get than the abolition of slavery? And the answer is a lot. This passage is far more directly relevant to us as believers when we understand that it was written to slaves and masters, not to employees and employers. We will come back later at the end to the question, why didn't Paul condemn slavery? And I hope by the time we do, the answer will be pretty obvious from the passage itself. Paul's essential command to slaves is in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh as to Christ. Now, if you look at verse 5, you'll see that the as to Christ is right at the end of the verse and there's some other stuff in between. But the reason I include as to Christ as part of the essential command is because it's essential to all of the commands in this passage. If you go back to, if you start at chapter 5, verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Children, verse chapter 6, verse 1, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh as to Christ. If you take the centrality of Christ out of any of these commands, you, you don't merely rob the command of some important qualification or clarification. You rip the heart out of the command. Because the heart of the command is union with Christ. The heart of all these commands is our calling from chapters 1 through 3. That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has lavished upon us His extravagant, outrageous grace beyond, beyond measure. And we've been made sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's why we obey these commands. And that's what makes these commands not, not burdensome, but cause for great rejoicing. Our union with Christ. We do these things as unto Christ. Paul doesn't mean when he says as to Christ, he does not mean as if to Christ. There's actually an English translation that says that, as if to Christ. It's not like you're pretending to be serving Christ. <laughs> it's you are obeying your master as an act of service to your real master in heaven. The Lord of glory. The heart of the matter here is a heart for Christ. Paul says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. And listen to all these, these clarifications. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service 
as men pleasers, Paul is the only guy that uses that word, eye service. It's a great word. What is eye service? It's when you do something to be noticed by men. How many of you ever had to work with that guy who, who had a genius level, uh, aptitude for looking really good when he wasn't? Right? He could sense, he had this radar, he could sense when someone in authority walked into the room or was anywhere near, and all of a sudden he kicked into high gear and he was more diligent than anybody else and he talked like he was just zealous for his work. And then as soon as the boss faded a little bit into the distance, he reverted back to being as, as, as useless as a waterproof tea bag. We've all known that guy, right? Paul is saying, we who are, who are the children of God, we get to serve from the depths of our heart. We get to serve with hearts filled with joy in serving. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. And he says, with good will. Look at all that. In the sincerity of your heart, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but think about it. How many of you get up in the morning with that attitude about the job that you go to? And then spend your day with that attitude. Beloved, that's the attitude to which we're called. And God called slaves He called slaves to have that attitude in their work. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter says that didn't just include nice masters. It included unjust masters, unreasonable masters. People who never had any appreciation for the work that you did. Who took advantage of you, even who were abusive to you. The reality, beloved, that the heart with which we do the work that God has filled our hands to do, that the, that heart is untouched by what our masters do, is revolutionary. So, according to Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 8, to whom does the believing slave actually render service? I'm gonna, Read a parallel passage from Colossians 3. And if you have your Bible, put a finger in there. Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23. Slaves, in all things, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who please men. And some of your Bibles have the word merely in there as those who merely please men. Merely is not in the, it's not, it doesn't belong there. Put a line through it. Most It's italicized in most of the versions where you see it because it's not in the Greek. Obey your masters on earth, not with external service as those who please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. That means with the whole heart as unto the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Okay, so in that passage, does Paul leave any question 
as to whether you are serving both men and God, or men and Christ, or serving Christ. Does he leave any question? Let's see. Do you work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men? Okay, who are you, who are you serving? Men or Christ or both? Rather than for, it's Christ. And then he ends by saying, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. See, you obey men in service to Christ. You obey your master in service to Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not serving your master. It means that, it means that he's not really the one that you work for. That's a big deal, guys. That is a game changer. If the work that we do every day, for whatever God fills our hand to do, we do for Christ and not for men, that's a game changer. In verse 5, Paul says, he refers to your masters according to the flesh. And then in verse 9, he says to masters, both your slave's master and your master is in heaven. So who's the master here? It's Christ. The man who has supervision and authority over you on earth is just a fellow slave. He's just a fellow slave with delegated authority. There is no inherent authority in anyone or anything except God. The word sovereign applies to only one being in the universe. And that's the one who made the universe. That's God. Sovereign refers to God. There are kings who have delegated sovereignty, but it's not theirs. It's a big deal. Flip back to Ephesians 1 verses 19 to 23. In that first chapter, Paul prayed that, he prayed for all believers that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would know three things. What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? And then, when he got to that part about the power, the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us, he said it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead and did what? Seated Him in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but in the age to come. So what's the focus there? It's on authority the power that that placed Christ, that raised Him back from the grave and seated Him in the heavenly places where He resumed, He regained the authority that belonged to Him inherently. Colossians 1.16, Paul speaking of Christ, says, For by Him, by Christ, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And he, he's going to give some examples of things that were created by Christ. And he says, uh, he, he could say, oh, rocks and trees and mountains and oceans, but that's not what he says. He says, by Christ all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And listen to the list. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him. What's the focus? The authority of the one true Master. You see this all over the place. Read Psalm chapter 2. Kings on earth 
guys, are pass-through authorities. They are surrogate authorities. Romans 13 says, there is no authority on earth that doesn't come from God. The authority belongs to Him. What was it that men kept saying about Jesus when they would hear Him speak? He speaks with such authority. It's because He owned it. Paul is telling us that in doing what our earthly masters require, to wives when doing what your husbands require, to members of the church in doing what your elders require, to children in doing what your parents require, to slaves in doing what your masters require, to employees in doing what your employers require, you are not serving earthly masters and Christ. You are serving Christ. And that's a game changer. Everything that we do as we work on this earth during this during our time here, we do for Christ. Not for human beings. God may use it to benefit human beings, but that's not who we do it for. This applies, as I said, to all the different categories of relationships of headship and submission. And it applies, chapter 5, verse 21, to all of our dealings with each other. We serve one another. We subject ourselves to one another, but we do so in the fear of Christ. We do so because He's our Master, because He's the one who's worthy of our allegiance and affection and obedience and submission and love. He's the one who's worthy. Not the person, not the other human being. Again, this one principle would radically change so many marriages. It would radically change the experience of so many Christians in the workplace and in the church. If we stopped being about serving human beings and started being about serving only Christ. The service we render to people is service unto Christ. And it's wholehearted service that God intends. And that's a whole lot more natural to the new man when we recognize that we're serving Christ. See, it's not natural to us who have been brought into union with, with the perfect God of of the universe with the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not natural for us to get excited about serving our fellow sinners. But it is natural to the new man to delight in serving our Savior and Master, the One who is worthy of everything. And I use the, the term natural. You've got to be careful with that word. It usually refers to the old man, but what I mean is in the new nature. Okay? How does this principle impact the way you work when you leave here today after, after this? I'm not saying this is new to everybody, but, but how must this affect the way that you work? How must it affect the way that you relate to your spouse? How must it affect the way that you deal with your involvement in the body of Christ when you don't agree with what the elders have decided about something? How must it affect the way you respond to your government? Romans 13 says that the authority of your government belongs to God. And He calls us to submit to that authority. Now, 
I hope this goes without saying, but it shouldn't. I mean, I, I should not let it go without saying. There is an exception in every one of these relationships to the call to submission. You saw it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You saw it with Daniel. You saw it with Peter and John when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Christ. When men command us to do what God forbids and when men forbid us to do what God commands, we say, sorry, no. We must obey God. And I've seen situations like that in the workplace. I know people in this body who have lost their jobs because they would not do something dishonorable and dishonest for their employer. Praise God. That, that is an opportunity. And the job that you lost was an opportunity for you to glorify Christ. And that's so much more important than that specific job. The big question here, guys, is how does it affect your joy? When you are put in a position that is subordinate to some other human being and that other human being doesn't treat you well, how does it affect your joy? If you're not serving that person and you are serving your Savior and Master Jesus Christ who loves you with a love that's incomprehensible, if you're serving the One who took on your humanness and led a perfect life and lived among the miserable likes of us for 33 years and then went to a cross to die for you and for me so that we could be His forever and dwell with Him in perfect union and communion and fellowship for all eternity? If He's the one that we're serving, He says it's not relevant how you're superior treats you. That has nothing to do with the way you approach your work. You with me? This is a game changer. Paul has zero interest in how our work is perceived by men. He doesn't say, do your work heartily to impress your boss. He doesn't say that. The whole notion of diligence for appearance's sake is completely opposed. It is diametrically opposed to everything that Paul is saying. And it is, it is opposed to walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, just in case some are, are hearing what I'm saying and they think that it means that you only have to comply with your boss's requirements if you're convinced that, that he's asking you to do something that God would enthusiastically ask you to do, let me clarify things. I've said it, but I want to be, I'll be real clear. Here's what God requires of you. Obey your boss. Unless He commands you to do what God has forbidden or forbids you to do what God has commanded. Only two exceptions. So if, if you're the vice president of, of marketing in your company and your boss shows up at your office with a, with a toilet brush and a b- bottle of cleanser and he says, I need you to go through all of the bathrooms in the building and clean them really well twice. You have two options. Because you're not a slave to him. You can quit your job. The only other option is to go clean all the toilets in the, in the building really well twice. You do not have the option to do so while muttering curses against your boss under your voice. You do not have the option to trash talk the boss 
at the water cooler between toilet cleanings. You do not have the option to do a poor job of cleaning the toilets. One of the best things that ever happened to me was when I was 13 years old, I got a job at a rec center outside of Houston, and I got to clean toilets and grease traps and dirty floors and mow 40 acres of lawn with a tractor and do all kinds of stuff that I'd never done before and that at the very beginning of it, I thought I thought was beneath me. Guys, it all washes off. <laughs> and, and there is nothing that's beneath us. We need delight. I actually loved that job. Now, the, the guy that I worked for was a good guy, but I, I got to where I really loved that job. I fixed 80 pairs of roller skates. Now, let me tell you when I really failed at this. I was working for VentureNet, which was the... I've had five careers. I... <laughs> I was working for VentureNet, which was the IT company that I worked for for 16 years before the elders asked me to come into this uh, this role. I was vice president of operations, and my job was to run the operations of the IT department. We had a telephony division, an IT division. My job was to run the run the the operations of the IT division. And then one day, my boss, who's a dear believer, John Klaus, he brought me into his office and he said, "Tom, I need you to do sales." Sales engineering. And I didn't want to do sales. And I raised all kinds of fuss about it. And I complained and I, I told him how wrong he was, how he was misjudging my usefulness to the company and I was making a, a brilliant case for staying in my role. And, and he finally he said, Tom, I need you in sales. And I knew, I knew what my options were. Okay. Do you know that when, when I humbled myself to accept doing that, for the next two years, I did sales engineering. I went to hundreds of prospects. I wrote hundreds of, of project plans. And it rounded me out in my usefulness to VentureNet more than anything else that I had ever done for that company. And I was so much more valuable to VentureNet after that. I'm, he moved me back into VP of operations. And when I retired from that, that's, that's what I was doing. But, but you know what? I was an idiot to try to tell him what I needed to be doing. I hope that that, I hope that kind of registers with some of you because if I had just said, fine, I do my work as unto Christ, I will do what you require and I won't raise a, I won't raise a fuss about it. It's okay to have the conversation about your highest and best use in the company, but, but man, that needs to be a pretty short conversation and it needs to not be belabored. Do what you are being told to do and do it with all your heart as unto the Lord and not as unto men. And that's the only way that you can do it with all your heart. Because men are a mess. They're like me. All right. Let's talk about the benefits package. In verse 7, Paul talks about the, about the benefits of being a slave of Christ. He says, with good will render service, 7 and 8, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, first thing I want you to notice there is that he's moving beyond 
slaves and masters. And he's saying, whatever work you do, whether you are a slave or a free man, the good things that you do will come back to you by the hand of God. He will bless you. Paul does the same thing in Colossians 3. He speaks of the reward for obeying these instructions about obeying our boss. And he, he moves beyond forced labor to all labor that, it, that, that we do on earth. And he says, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work with all your heart for the Lord rather than for men. There's that rather than thing again. Rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You know what that means, guys? That means that the Puritans had it exactly right. They said that all work is worship. They said that everything that we do with our hands must be done unto the Lord and when it is, It is an act of worshipful service to God. They were right. And that that has a huge ramification when it comes to the church and the way the church operates because that means that there is no distinction between sacred work and secular work. That means that that is a human contrivance. That distinction is a human contrivance. There is nothing more or less sacred about digging a ditch for your boss than there is about standing up here and preaching or being an elder or ministering as a missionary or in any other capacity the idea that there the the whole idea of secular and sacred in the workplace is a human contrivance it serves it serves really well to make people dependent on the church you know people used to pay monks to be holy for them That's not the way God set things up. And the reward that you will receive, the only reward that should, that that actually should have any impact on how you do your work comes from the hand of your one and only true master, Jesus. That means you do not work. It is from the Lord that you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. You do not work to receive appreciation, gratitude, recognition, Higher rank in the company. Lots of money. That's not why you work. God might give you some of that stuff, but that's not why you work. And the reward that matters, that should matter to us as the children of God is the reward of the inheritance. What inheritance? The one that Paul talked about in chapter 1. The one where in the prayer he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what are the the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. And what is His inheritance in the saints? It's the saints. And the saints' inheritance is Him together with one another. That's our reward. By the way, little aside, it changes your whole concept of heavenly rewards if you realize that the rewards are a person and not a circumstance. See, you and I are not, we are not serving God so that, so that if we work hard enough, we don't have to be a street sweeper in heaven. We are serving God knowing that the reward of the inheritance 
is that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ forever. And His inheritance is us. Read the first three verses of Psalm 16. You'll see what David had to say about, about the reward that is worthwhile. The down payment of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. That fits really well since the rest of our inheritance is the rest of God. We will spend eternity laying hold of our inheritance, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Bride. Right? The last thing Paul says in verse 9 is, Masters, you're really just slaves too. He tells masters, do the same things to your slaves. Do you know how how crazy controversial that would have been in Rome? Masters, do the same things to your slaves that I just commanded them to do to you. He's not saying masters, obey your slaves. He's saying masters, I call you to the same sacrificial love for your slaves that I call your slaves to have for you out of service to Christ. Everything that both of you do is to serve the one who is master over both of you because, master, you're just another slave. God is no respecter of persons, Paul says. There's no partiality with Him. God is not impressed that you're a master on earth. Doesn't matter to Him. When I did my internship at Wayside Chapel in San Antonio, pastoral internship many moons ago, one of the elders there was named Russ Kelfer. Some of you know him. Dear godly man, amazing Bible teacher. Professionally, he owned a tire store. One of the other elders who also happened to be president of the elder board in the year that I was there was his shop foreman at the tire store that he owned. See, that's the way the body of Christ works. At the end of Romans 16, Paul allows the amanuensis, the man who wrote the words of the book of Romans down for him as he dictated. He, he allowed that man to greet the church himself. And that man's name was Tertius. He said, I, Tertius, greet you. And then Tertius, re, he referred to a guy named Gaius who was hosting the church in, at, at where Paul was in Rome. Paul had been imprisoned under house imprisonment in Rome. And he was writing to Ephesus. And Paul says that this guy Gaius was hosting the church. And then he mentions another guy named Quartus. Do you know what the names Tertius and Quartus mean? Third and fourth. They're slave names. Romans often gave numbers as names to their slaves to designate their rank or their importance to the Master. And Paul lets Tertius greet the church because in Christ there is neither slave nor free man. All right, almost done here. Why didn't Paul condemn slavery <laughs> instead of telling his readers how to be good slaves? Better question is why didn't Jesus condemn slavery? Maybe a better question yet is why didn't Jesus end slavery? along with poverty and injustice and illness and all the things that we have on this earth as a result of the curse and the sin of men. Why didn't He just put an end to all of it? Paul doesn't sidestep God's answer to those hard questions. Our problem is that we don't like His answer, some of us. 
First part of his answer is that he's talking to Christians. Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And the second part of his answer is, guess what, guys? We are all slaves. We are all owned by God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God and that who is in you whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You're owned. You are a slave just like me. A slave of Christ. And that's marvelous. And, and that's why you submit your body to Christ. Christians are slaves by definition. You know, you know what the four most common designations of Christians are in the New Testament? In order of frequency. First, brothers or brethren. Second, saints. Third, children of God. And fourth, slaves of Christ. And do you know what? Slaves of Christ is applied, that term is applied to Christians more often than sons of God. Brothers and sisters, you would never belong to Christ if you had not become owned by Christ. You would never have become a friend of God if you had not been made a slave of Christ. You would never have become a child of God if you had not been made a slave of the Master of all creation. 1 Corinthians 7 says, listen to this, this is really powerful. Let each man remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. Literally, let it not be a care to you that you were called to Christ while a slave. And then he says something really interesting. He says, if you were able to become free, do that. But, but if your translation says do that, I hate to tell you, it's, it's taking liberties. If you have King James or New King James or old 1901 American Standard, you know what those say? They say use that. That's the word. Use that. If you're able to become free, use that. Just like you use being a slave for Christ. He's not saying it's preferable to be, to be a free man. He's not saying that. He's saying if you're a free man, use that. If you're a slave, use that. You with me? And then he says, don't ever become a slave of men. And what he means is, don't, he, he's not saying if you're a slave, you gotta get out of that. He's saying, don't ever accept the identity of being a slave of men when you are only a slave of Christ. We are so enamored with the assertion, and I'm gonna offend some people here, but not because I wanna offend. We are so enamored with the assertion that we have a God-given, God-guaranteed, God-promised, inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that we make the God of the Bible out to be a liar. The world does not need a bunch of politically correct Christians agreeing with them that we're all supposed to have life on our terms and that's the highest and greatest good for us. The highest and greatest good for us while we're here on this earth is to share in the sufferings of Christ. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if 
indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. When did His suffering end? And He returned to His glory? When He died. And the servant is not greater than the Master. So when is our suffering going to end? When we die. Until then, we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ. We are not guaranteed physical life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness. Because our freedom, beloved, is the freedom that we, that we have in our union with Jesus Christ. And that's the only freedom that matters. And the world can't give that to us. And the government can't give that to us. If you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're still a slave like the rest of us, but you're a, you're a slave who is in bondage to your sin. And you are, you are headed to eternal condemnation where you will spend the rest of eternity under that same bondage. If that's you, I pray that you will put your trust in the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And you'll, you'll be plucked out of the darkness and brought into the light and you will become a slave of Christ. Like it or not, <laughs> that's what happens when He saves you. How do we who belong to Christ glorify Christ and enjoy Christ while we're still here on the earth under the curse? We count the rewards that come from the hands of men to be no rewards at all. We count the approval that comes from men to be of zero value. We carry about in our bodies the dying of Christ all day that other people may come to know Him. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross daily. And we follow Christ. He died to make us slaves, but not slaves of Christ, but not just slaves. Friends, and not just friends, but sons for all eternity. Loving Father, make us really good slaves. Make us live as outrageously wealthy slaves of the King of kings and Lord of lords who is all our good. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.